Isn't it, isn't it kind of amazing, like, when you're uh, young and technology, technology comes easy to you and then you get old and you're asking your kids how to do things all the time. It's just the way it is. Um, okay, my, uh, my job today is to talk about uh, salvation and baptism. Specifically, we're going to get to that kind of in the middle of the stuff. I want to start at like a 30,000 foot view, talk about this. Let me pray for us real quick, and then we're going to take a three or four hour talk, and we're going to condense it into about 40 minutes. God, thanks for today. Thanks for your uh, love for us. Thanks for our kids um, and the kids of... Um, even these kids that aren't ours necessarily that are here, that we get to have this uh, larger faith family effect of helping point them to you. Thank you for um, just the joy that we have in you, and I pray that uh, your joy is in our hearts and on our faces more and more, and we pray that our kids, Psalm says, taste and see that you are good and that they, in turn, would turn and trust you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um, well, let's talk about this. And uh, m m the hope of this whole series is certainly not that you would feel, uh, not that you would feel guilty. Um, it is kind of funny when you, look, uh, when you look at Scripture that family number one is a dysfunctional family. Family number one. A lot of times when I hear these or read these things, I think, man, I, I, they have the perfect family, and I wish I could have a better family, but that's just not true. You look at family number one, Adam and Eve, and they have a dysfunctional family, right? They brought sin into the world. It doesn't speak dysfunction more than that. Then they hid from God, and then even their kids, one of their kids killed another one of their kids. That's the first family ever which is like, and then every family since then has been a dysfunctional family. Maybe not yours, but most every other family has been dysfunctional in some sort of way. So the goal of this is not to, not to, not to provide like guilt or condemnation. Or hopefully it's to, we're going to outline the way that God intended um, uh, the family to pass on spiritual truths and um, for us to find our joy in him. So um, I got you a little sheet on the table. We're not going to get to that till about halfway through, but that's just for you um, talking to your kids about um, stepping across a line of faith and what it means to be baptized. Um, again, there's so much more. I can send you resources that give you a much more coherent understanding. That's just kind of the, the brevity of it. Maybe we could say it that way. Um, but let's, let's start here. Spiritual formation. Um, in the family is is God's is God's idea. Oh, not on there. Uh, spiritual formation family is God's idea. God created the process of spiritual formation, right? And He knows how it works, and we can trust Him with that. Our main text today is going to be the Shema in Deuteronomy six. Also, we'll refer to a couple others, maybe even the uh, the Great Commission in Matthew twenty eight. Um. Let's start, let's start with the passage. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. 
bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Now, you know that this passage, the Shema, comes right after the Ten Commandments. So God gave the Ten Commandments, and this is like the application of the Ten Commandments, and it's called the Shema because those first few words in Hebrew um, make that sound, the Shema. So that's what it's been referred to, and it was the pathway of family discipleship from the creation of it here in Deuteronomy all the way through, even some, uh, it's even taught in Jewish schools today. I mean, the Shema is just held so highly esteemed, right? And there's a couple things that I want us uh, to look at this. One, um, the focus in, in, in the beginning is, is you, the parent, that you are, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, or all your might, it says here in this translation. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart, right? This is this. This is not to the kids. This is to you as a parent, even if you don't have kids in here yet. This is still this command to all of us. You know, a teacher of the law came to Jesus and asked him about this, the greatest commandment. He goes back to here and then adds that uh, love your neighbor as yourself piece. So kind of point number one is to make Jesus the center of your life. A lot of times we put Jesus, spiritual formation, we put all these things uh, kind of on the outside, and we put them like another thing we do, and work's out there, and uh, family's out there, and recreation whatever we do there's out there and keeping our house up is out there and community involvement and church is one of the 12 or 15 plates that we're just spending all the time and we're just trying to say how can i make this work but that was not the identity here the identity is that this becomes the center of everything instead of you being at the center this becomes the center and everything else that you do orbits around this one idea of jesus at the center of your life so your recreation and your community involvement, and your kids' school activities, and all of them orbit around this idea or through this lens of what does it look like for Jesus to be at the center of my life and everything. So um, we had our first, uh, we had Claire, Claire and Ellie were both born in uh, Mansfield, Texas, and uh, I was serving at a church over there, and of course we dedicated Claire there, and we brought her up to the front, and the pastor read uh, Ephesians 6, 4, you're supposed to bring your kids up in the abomination of the Lord. And uh, we're, we're supposed to, do you promise to do this? And we as the parents, we say, yes, we're going to do this. And what most of us meant is that we're going to bring them to church. Not that we are going to shoulder the weight of intentionally shepherding the hearts of our kids towards Christ. What we meant is we're going to bring them to church. I read recently a nationwide uh, survey of people who faithfully go to church. This is, was shocking. Only 7% of them did anything to help their child grow in Christ other than bring them to church. Only 7%. So 93% nationwide surveys in America, 93% of the nation said, you know what? What I'm doing to bring my kids to Christ, to show them the joy of the Lord, to teach them that walking in the way of Jesus is the most worthwhile thing you can do in your life. The only thing I'm doing is I'm just going to bring them to church. But the Shema says nothing about bringing them to church. 
it says to you as a parent, you love the Lord your, your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? You let these commandments be on your heart, and then you teach them to your kids. So the number one predictor that study we're going to say of kids who walk with Jesus in adulthood is that in their childhood and teenage years, they were connected to at least one adult that had a vibrant walk with Jesus. And vibrant meant that it wasn't just the going to church thing. Like they were talking about Jesus and they were rearranging their life around the words of Jesus. That was the number one predictor. Last year, uh, a million students walked away from their faith. There's a book called The Rise of the Nuns, N-O-N-E, and this is what it is. And it is an indictment on a nation who said, we are going to disciple our kids by bringing them to church. Now, I'm the pastor of this church, one of the pastors. I love that you bring your kids to church. I'm committed to bringing my kids to church. It is a big deal to me, a really big deal to me. And I want them here, and I want them involved in youth group, and I want them to have a second voice. But none of that relegates my responsibility to walk with Jesus for his commands to be the delight of my heart. And that's not just the what can we do and what we can't do. It's not just the rules. That's why I like that word vibrant. It's the joy of Jesus in you, walking in peace and full of hope, even through difficult circumstances. It's this real and honest and authentic walk with Jesus. Now, here's what a lot of us do. We don't want our kids to see our sin, and so we never let them see it. I grew up in a house, and I never saw my parents fight ever. Not one time in my entire life. I never saw them. Every once in a while, I could tell, especially if I got to be a teenager, they were a little perturbed at each other. And they, one of them would just say, you know, Larry, Leslie, they would just use that tone, and that meant we're going to talk about this later. But I never saw them fight, and I never saw them make up, and I never saw them reconcile. And I think that kind of hurt me as in my marriage because I thought my marriage had to be perfect and there was no fighting allowed. But, of course, they fought as I asked them. Yeah, we fought. We fought all the time. We just never let you see it. And I'm not saying we should throw it down in front of our kids. I'm not saying that. There are some things that should be handled after they go to bed. But these are conversations we should have with our kids. We should, we should tell them where we've messed up and where we need the forgiveness of Jesus. I was listening to Pete Gregg. He has a new book on prayer. I'm trying to remember what that book is called. I love his little, his little thing of prayer, which is so good. He's, his, his like model for prayer and even prayer with our kids is uh, keep it real. Keep it real. If you're struggling, if you're discouraged, what, it's just keep it real. Keep it real. Keep it simple. And keep it up. And I was like, I can pray that way. Keep it real, keep it simple, keep it up. And he goes through the parable of the persistent widow, uh, through the uh, tax collector and the Pharisee in the temple, one, you know, beating his chest. You know, that's the, you know, keep it, keep it real. And, you know, just keep it simple. So I love that idea. So making, making Jesus the center. Um, if the Bible is the book, then the parent is the movie. They have to see it demonstrated in an authentic way. My grandma, uh, Mamaw Joyce, who Ellie's named after, my dad's mom, um, 
not a strong believer. I love going to their house, though, because she'd let me sweep her kitchen. She'd give me $2 and take me down to Landmark Grocery, and I get to pick anything I wanted with those $2, even if I did a terrible job sweeping. She always needed a kitchen swept. So, uh, what I, so I loved going there, hanging out with her. I'd spend a week at a time, and she smoked Marlboro Lights, and that's just what she did. She had uh, the smoking room. It was just a room off the side of the house, and she visited that room. She was probably packed or two packs of day, I don't know, all the time. And I remember going in there, you know, she was going in there and watch the birds while I'm suffering from secondhand smoke. It was before we knew that was a thing. And so um, I was in there, Mamaw Joyce, great memories, watching birds. I still love to watch birds. My family makes fun of, that, fun of me for that. I know, I know the types of birds because of Mamaw Joyce. And we had watched a bird, and she had smoke, and she, I, I'd normally look at that smoking stick in her hand, and I would just have questions about it. And she would say, listen, baby, don't you ever smoke like Mamaw does. And I would be like, but that looks so cool, Mamma, you know? And one time I remember as a 10-year-old, um, she got up and left the room and she didn't put her cigarette out, left it there. So I picked that cigarette up and put it to my lips. And as soon as I was about to inhale, she comes running in there and slaps me inside the face and says, uh, what did I tell you? And I was like, but you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, you can't do it and tell me not to do it. That, that just doesn't work, right? And this is the same thing with the Lord. We can't tell our kids to love the Lord or trust the Lord or put their confidence in the Lord or see the Lord as the provider or see the Lord as our hope or see the Lord as our peace. When they see our lives and everything we do contradicts that truth. Because when difficulty comes, we don't run to pray. We just run to worry. When anxiety comes, we try to shift things around. Most of the time, for many of us, the last thing we do is run to prayer. Uh, run to the Lord. Give it to the Lord. So that's point number one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You've got to make Jesus the center. We can say that a thousand different ways. Psalm 78, I don't have time to read it. It's this beautiful passage of passing the truths of God down from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. You read that, there's seven generations mentioned in that Psalms 78, which is just really cool. And it's the real way of how you turn culture around, is you pass authentic faith down from the parents right, to the children, and the children begin to live in a way, and that creates a compelling culture that the watching world outside who is nothing of Jesus is like, man, that is so countercultural. Look at the hope and joy and love that they have, how they forgive each other, care for each other, those kind of things. So make Jesus the center. Point number two, teach your kids God's truth. Now, all this is headed to salvation baptism. But don't let the first time you talk to your kids about God, talk to them about salvation, right? And that happens all the time. Parents come to me like, hey, my kid is talking to me about they want to they step across the line of faith. I don't know what to tell them. I was like, well, just keep telling them what you've been telling them. Well, I hadn't been telling them anything. So don't make the first conversation about salvation uh, that you have about God with your kids be the one about salvation. Teach your kids God's truth. The Great Commission tells us um, that we make disciples by teaching them to observe. And you can you know, go back and read that in, in a little bit. But teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded. That's the word of God. The Great Commission tells us how we make disciples, baptizing, and then teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded, all the word of God, teaching them to live out the word of God, teaching them to put the word of God into practice. You teach people to observe or to obey by them watching you observe and obey the word of God. That's how they do it. 
So if there never comes a time where you're making a sacrifice of generosity, they're never going to learn what that looks like. If, they, if there never comes a time where uh, you, you have to forgive uh, each other or confess to one another or to trust in God during difficulty, if your kids never see that, they're never going to learn this. They've got to see this first in you, putting the word of God into practice. Disciple making always revolves around the word of God. The early disciples, just as they begin to live out, they begin to share the word of God. In Acts 2, when Peter gets up and shares the word of God at Pentecost, 12 of the 23 verses that he uses there are words from the Old Testament. Someone had diligently taught Peter the word of God. In Acts 4, the word is spoken and believed and lives are radically changed there at the end of that passage. In Acts 6, as the word increased, it says the disciples multiplied and the word spread. Disciples are made through and revolve around the word of God. Some of us are called to teach the word of God formally through gifts of teaching, see James 3, but we're all commanded to teach the word of God relationally. Teach them to obey um, all that I have commanded. So this is this point. Teach your kids God's truth. When we say teach, the picture immediately comes like this, like a podium and us proclaiming the word of God. And I don't know about your family, but that kind of stuff does not fly in my family. Like if I start sounding preachery, my kids like shut down. They do not want to hear preacher dad. They want to hear Holy Spirit filled dad, just dad. They want to hear me at the dinner table, me on the couch, me pausing the game, me interrupting disputes, me bringing up the conversation of dad, dad blew it and needs forgiveness. Uh, when I overreact, that's what they need to see. That's how we teach them the truth. Most of Jesus' important teaching didn't come from a podium. It came from along the way. This is a pattern you see all throughout the New Testament. As people taught the word of God to one another in their homes and at their table while they walk, it's making Deuteronomy 6 come alive. This is what he says, you know, when you, when you leave the gate and along the way and in the morning and at night. It's just, that just means in the routine of everyday life, we are talking about the word of God. You see this model through Jesus. Although he did teach large crowds at uh, the Sermon on the Mount on the side of a mountain and synagogues, most of his teachings, most of what we have captured in the Gospels are his along-the-way talks to his disciples as they were headed to a wedding, as they were headed to Caesarea Philippi, as they were coming back from here, as they were traveling through Samaria on the way to here, as they were at Cana or Jordan, all those things. Most of the teachings we have from Jesus were along-the-way kind of teaching. Which brings up this question from us, mom and dad. How do you teach your children? Most of you, even the teachers in here, we got a lot of teachers in here, you don't teach your children like you teach your kids in a classroom. You don't bring the podium in front of the fireplace and say, now we are going to learn about the birds and the bees or whatever it is. Hopefully you don't do it that way. That's kind of scary. Um, most of that's not done in a classroom, but it's done in the context of relationships. And this is what I really, we teach our kids within the context of relationships. All discipleship happens really in the context of relationships. It just does. Truth is passed from one person to another in the context of relationships. I've never used the word in an apologetic way and convinced someone to go a different route. I have sat with them at coffee and genuinely shared my heart using the word of God and saw the Holy Spirit bring real repentance there. 
Discipleship happens in the context of relationship. Again, this is as you do life. That's, that's I think, what the Shema is getting to. This is the biggest strategy that we've lost as the American church. We have compartmentalized everything. Like, we're going to learn about God on Sunday mornings, and if you're faithful, Wednesday nights. And this is when we're these little compartments, and maybe at an MC. But that is not the way we talk about God. We are supposed to talk about God on our hearts, from our mouths, all the time. That's why the Shema presents it that way. To teach the word relationally, we have to resist the temptation to keep things surface with our kids, look for opportunities to go deeper. Uh, Just a quick side note. It is so hard to do this on the way or along the way if you're not reading the word of God and it's not joyful in your own heart because you're not ready. Because if typical day, if you haven't got up and read God's word and you're sitting at the dinner table and they're all talking about their thing, you're going to sound real preachery if you just said, you know what, we're going to look at the sixth commandment today. But you know what you can say? You know what? I was reading Psalms this morning, and God encouraged my heart so much in this passage. And then you just read those verses with them, one or two verses at dinner table. It doesn't have to be formal. You don't have to have all the answers. What you're doing is exposing God's word to them and showing them that you love the word of God. That's how you put Jesus back at the center. And, of course, you live out that kind of, that kind of way. It's the word of God that brings Salvation, 2 Timothy 3.14, you however continue the things you've learned and become convinced of, remember this is Paul reminding Timothy, from what you have lear- uh, learned them, whom you have learned them, from that, that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith. Again, we're going to salvation, walking kids across the line of faith, but it's so much more than that. All right, so we're going to teach our kids God's truth, then the question becomes, what do we teach them? What do we teach them? What do they need to know? Well, Paul tells us we need to teach them the whole counsel of God, which that's pretty, that's pretty exhaustive. That's a lot, right? Um, I've uh, boiled it down to kind of the like seven competencies. I don't think this is on your sheet. I thought this was on there. This would have been easier. You don't, don't write all this down. I can email this to you. Um, I'll send an email out probably tomorrow morning with this on there. But this is the core competencies. Um, who is Jesus? Just the basics of who Jesus is. Read John 1. Read 1 John 1. Read Colossians 2. Read some of these great um, Christological passages. Who is Jesus? Number two, I think I have a slide for this. Yeah. What is faith and belief? You can look at uh, Hebrews 11.1, 1, what faith is. We've been talking about that as a church the past couple weeks. Um, and really talk, what, is, what does it mean to believe something, to put your weight on something? What is biblical truth? Um, absolute truth, maybe the word we would use in today's culture. Truth defined by the Bible, God's infallible truth given to us without error. Um, so that's what we want to teach them. Biblical truth. So they know that this is the truth for all people at all times in all situations. That is God's biblical truth, right? Absolute truth. What is personal sin? And I like the word personal sin because one of the steps in leading our kids to step across the line of faith is this idea of their own personal sin. Not sin as just a concept, but that their sin was placed upon the cross of Christ. Right. So personal sin. Uh, What is. uh, Let's see, do I have that next one? I don't have the next one. 
uh, I, I give you the, the next uh, three. Again, you don't have to write it down. What is repentance and how do I repent? Um, some great passages on this. Number six, what is salvation? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, a gift from God, from his grace, given to those who have faith and believe. And then seven, uh, what is baptism and why should I do it? These are kind of like in this age range of seven to 11. These are some of the things you need to teach your kids. And if they don't learn in that age range, that's fine. I'm still learning some of these things. Um, so those are the seven things. Like if you're going to boil everything down to this, um, you could use the Apostles' Creed as a guidance as it kind of summarized the basic teaching of God's word. A little more robust, if you got a teenager, you could teach them the Nicene Creed, which is just a little bit more explanation. Again, it's just a summary. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not the authoritative word of God. It's a summary of it. That's what all kind of catechesis is. It's like a summary of these main spiritual truths that we should teach, um, teach our kiddos. So um, that's what do we teach them, and then the how do we teach them. And I know I'm going really fast. I'm trying to get through some of this. How do we teach them? You go back to the Shema, and what did the Shema say? How, how do we teach them? What is the posture of our teaching? It says in verse 7 of Shema, you shall teach them diligently. Or maybe we would use the word intentionally. How do we teach them? We teach them intentionally. It is amazing again to me. In this day and age, how much resources for planning things that we have. Um, Ashley and I were planning a trip to Italy for our 20th anniversary, which is the summer, and COVID messed it all up. But it was amazing. We started 18 months ago planning this trip and putting money aside and watching movies of people in Italy and talking about where we wanted to go and what the climate was probably going to be like when we went and where we're going to go get the best gelato. I mean, for 18 months, we had this little, you know, Pinterest board, uh, you know, of Italy. And we do that for everything. We, we will look up in YouTube how to fix our car and things that we're interested in, and we will plan these things out to the nth degree. And here we're talking about the spiritual formation of our kids, and a lot of us, a lot of parents in America are just like, man, I don't know, I don't know. No, let's get a plan together. Let's intentionally set this thing up. Now listen, the culture wars against this by making you so busy that you don't have time for this. A lot of this, even with your best plans, you, it'll never happen because you're just too busy. You don't have any margin. You have, you have no margin to, to, to see a God moment and stop. You have no margin. And this is just so convicting even to me. This is the Holy Spirit. This has nothing to do with you. This just has to do with me. Um, how do we teach them? We teach them intentionally, diligently, uh, in the book of uh, the Intentional Fa Father, John Tyson uh, sketches out five different types of parents. Uh, the irresponsible parents, these are the parents that just, you know, get drugged up and have nothing to do with their kids. And they're just irresponsible and they do such damage to their kids. And our society is filled with those irresponsible, irresponsible parents. And then there's ignorant parents. These mostly are parents that just really want to be their um, kids' best friends. And so they just like bend all the rules to be the fun house. You know, they're involved in their kid's life, but they're just ignorant to actually what the, the kind of damage they're doing. And then we have inconsistent parents. These are parents that like go in spurts. They're like, we're going we're gonna to teach you the word of God. And it lasts like three days. And then, you know, a couple months later, they come back around to it. 
and they're just inconsistent. There's no consistency, so the value of it is never passed on from mom and dad to the kids because it's just inconsistent. I mean, how good are you at doing something if you do it four times a year? You're just not very, it's just inconsistent. And then fourth group, there's the involved parents. These are the parents that make all the games, that take the kids to church, that have no plan for discipleship. This is the 93% that we talked about earlier, who says, I'm just going to take the kids to church. And then fifthly, and this is the kind of parents we want to be, is intentional parents. And these are the parents that have a plan to disciple their kids, and they have a plan that's unique to their kids. You know, you have kids that are wired differently, and they're going to respond differently. Um, my Claire is uh, disciplined. Um, she wants to know all the things about everything. Uh, she asks all the hard questions. She just wants to know it. And so for Claire, before she was two, she learned all the books of the Bible, all of Psalms 1, uh, all of John 3, all of John 1. She would just soak them up. She would just learn them, and we'd rehearse them every night, and she loved it. Ellie probably has learned nothing. She just does not care about that. She is a feeler. I mean, we watched, uh, we watched uh, the Marvel movie last night, and Ellie cried for two and a half hours. I mean, the whole thing. It's like, what are you crying about, Ellie? It's like, Spider-Man's alone. I was like, this is, no, this is a movie, and he's a superhero. He's fine. He's going to be fine. Um, she just feels all the things, right? And so I connect with Ellie over music, and she doesn't get a lyric. So my plan to disciple Claire and my plan to disciple Ellie are different, right? Now, there are some commonalities. We talk about God's word. I want to live a life of joy and hope and peace in front of them all the time, and I want to talk about what I'm reading and what God's doing, but how I just see their beautiful hearts and how I see the enemy's plan to, to, to kill, steal, and destroy them and how I want to insert the word of God to them is a little different. It takes me being connected to the heart of my kids to know this. And then the time and intentionality to plan out how we're going to disciple them. Now, Hudson, we're still praying about Hudson. We've got to get some kind of a Vanja cube and a logo and a, and, a, and, a, and a Lego form so that we can somehow show him. He just wants nothing to do with it right now. Um, which, which, which is cool. All right, so how do we teach them? We teach them intentionally, um, really through faith talks. This is, I know we got to uh, wrap up, but faith talks, and we use different words for this. They're just an intentional time to set aside each week for conversation around Scripture. This is family worship, if you want to call that this. It doesn't have to be that. I mean, it could be just an intentional time. It's crazy to me that we'll let, you know, football and baseball and soccer coaches have more authority over our family schedule. It's just crazy to me. Like, why, why do we do that? We're the ones in control here. We're the ones that get to set this time. And I'm not saying that it can't float around. I'm not being legalistic. I'm just saying don't let culture rob this from us. Don't let culture rob this from your own kids. Make this important. Having these faith talks with your kids. Intentional time. Set aside each week for conversation around scripture. And I mean, maybe you do it every day, that's fine. But let's, let's shoot for at least once a week that we're gonna have an intentional time. Um, Monday nights or Friday nights or whatever it is, when we sit down for dinner, we're gonna have this, we're gonna have this faith kind of conversation. I would encourage you to have those conversations more often, but I do encourage you to have some time set aside that your kids know that we're gonna read a little portion of scripture and we're gonna have some faith talk around it. What does this mean? And then you get to remind them so, again, it's intentional. You place effort, energy, a good environment. 
to bring up God's word. Uh, I, I love how much of this is tactile when you look at the Shema, like when you walk along the road, like so much of it is involves this tactile learning. So we can talk about those things. Um, it's intentional. It's at least once a week and it's a conversation. Based on the kid's development, let the teaching be a time of conversation and not your just three points in a poem or whatever you heard John Piper say or whoever your person you're listening to is. It's a conversation about faith. So here's what I totally do is we normally read just a few verses of the, of the Psalms. We almost keep it always in Psalms or a story in the Gospels. This is just because I'm in those things every day. And I'll say um, the conversation we had uh, last week was about John 6. I've talked to you some about this, about uh, him feeding the 5,000 or probably 15,000. And it says the disciples fed them. Jesus broke the bread and, and the fish and multiplied it. And kind of like I, the mental image I get reading the passages, he's up there breaking the fish and the bread and he's multiplying it. And the disciples are caring for the people. But then I thought, how much food could you carry to people like like at one time, if you were just to not even do it like the servers do and line it down your arms, if you just to throw all that bread and fish in a basket that you could physically carry to 15,000 people, how much could you carry? Could you feed 50 people with it? Well, you're going to have to feed 1,000 people. How many trips do you have to give them the food and run back to Jesus? And Jesus is over there just doing his thing, you know, break, 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 break. You're filling it up. You're pulling it. You're carrying to the people. You're dumping this out. You're running back. This is cool, man. We just talked about this. Why do you think? Why do you think that Jesus didn't make it just rain down on them like he did in the Old Testament or that he just multiplied it and boom, it's there? Why, why do there have to be baskets and leftovers picked up? And why did he want the disciples to do it? Just great. And one of my kids said, it's because Jesus didn't want the disciples to think that they were the ones making the food to keep them dependent upon Jesus. I love that picture. Running back. This is not me doing it. I'm just the vessel delivering, getting from Jesus, delivering to my friends, getting from Jesus. And that's this conversation we have around the table, which is just great. If we're just intentional, read God's word, bring it up. Now, listen, that's one time I did it right. I've done it 4,000 times wrong. So don't think, well, you know, Luke's the one. No, I mess this up all the time. Um, that's the faith talk. I have one more passage. Yeah, this is it. So. The desire to see our children come to know Christ can place pressure on us to say the right things and not make any mistakes. And I want to relieve that pressure. I think Paul does this. He says, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul saying he understood that he was the messenger, but the message would be accepted only as the Holy Spirit delivered it to their hearts. And this is what we do. So. We teach the word of God and we model the word of God and we make it important. And we make it the Jesus center of our lives. But God's the one that has to move. And he doesn't always do it like we expect him to or in some orderly, you know, like, well, when they're seven, they should have done this. And by 11, we kind of put ages around this. And I don't know if it's that helpful. God's the one who moves. He moves through consistent teaching of Scripture. The, God, the, the, the kids begin to understand and put things together. For some, it'll be on the school bus, the others in the backseat of the car, around the dinner table. God will guide their minds to make these connections work. And when they verbalize these connections, it becomes this real God moment that we can capitalize on. God moves, and the parents, we pray. Teaching the truth has a partner called prayer. 
Parents interceding for their children is the most powerful tool that, that we could ever put our arms around. Remember, keep it real, keep it simple, keep it up. Just like, this is a prayer I pray. God, I don't think Hudson gets it. I think he should be getting it. Lord, what can I do to help Hudson grasp it, to, to get it? Like, right, Lord, I don't know how to stay connected with Ellie. I just, I want, I want her to know the truth and love the truth and love you. Help me find a way to connect our hearts together. Just keep it real and keep it simple and keep it up. That's, that's the prayer. Um, here's salvation baptism. So we're not actually going to go over this sheet. This is, again, just a summary. When you're walking your kids across the line of faith, this might help you. When I'm walking my kids, uh, you, can, you can talk through the, the, uh, the, the meta-narrative, which is up here on the screen. I don't know if you've ever seen this. The creation, fall, redemption. What does it say? Restoration at the end or whatever they say over there? That's the meta-narrative that goes through Scripture. What I want them to see is that they're not the center of the story, that this is not just about them being the hero, that Jesus is the real hero here, and that he came and died for their sins so that they could have life, eternal life, in the future, but also right now. That's really what I want them to see. So here's a couple things that you can kind of walk them through. You can go through the Romans Road. You can go through anything else. Again, this is a conversation. I want them to understand that it's personal. A couple that's confirmed the decision. Those are some of the questions I ask when I talk to kids about this or adults about this. Um, that's the line of faith piece. And then the next, the other side of that, page two, is the baptism. So we don't have a rule. There's some of my friends that, you know, they don't baptize kids until they're 13. And I don't think that's a bad tradition or a bad idea just to help make sure the kids, like, really grasp it. Um, but kids can certainly come to faith much, much younger than that, you know, six, seven, eight, whenever they start really, you know, thinking on a more complex level. But... Um, uh, we don't do that here, but we do encourage you, like, you know, if you have a five-year-old coming, you want to get baptized, we encourage them to wait. And all my kids did this. I think Claire came at six or seven, and I had her wait till she was nine, probably, or ten. And we just talked about it a lot and made sure it was a real deal, and I just wanted to see the conviction of sin in her. That's really what I wanted to see, the Holy Spirit's work. So, um, and then, you know, me or Jason or Robin or other people would be glad to talk with your kids, kind of to have a second voice kind of exploring some of these if you want to if you want to partner with us in this but this is the deal any questions thoughts comments cries of outrage or protest let me pray for us god i love you so much thank you for your word thank you for the blessing of these kids i just pray god that um if your word of god is the script i pray the movie that they see in us would be as real and authentic and compelling as you are and that you're not afraid of our doubts and our questions and our faults that we don't have to put on for our kids give them the best version of us Lord we can just be real and point them to you that our sin is great and our Savior is even greater thank you for today and all that we'll celebrate today um, for Palm Sunday specifically, as you rode into Jerusalem um, to be a sacrifice for our sins. Thank you, uh, Jesus, so much for that. I pray that our hearts are full of joy and thankfulness. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.